All right, well, go ahead and grab your Bible, uh, if you have one, to, and turn it to Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're going to stand together and read from God's Word, um, from Mark uh, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles, this is on page 836. It's actually the first passage we studied together in our official launch as a church was from Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Remember, as we read, we're reading God's word. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent And believe in the gospel. That's God's word. Uh, You may be seated. Uh, Short and sweet today in terms of that passage. We'll look at some other ones uh, as we go this morning as well. The place I want to begin this morning is is to state this reality. And And I'm absolutely convinced that this is true. This is reality. Your future expectations will shape your current decisions. Your future expectations shape your current decisions. They do. It's not a question of if they do, it's they do. And how do they? Your expectations, your, uh, your vision of what's going to take place in the future always will have an impact on what you do now. And we can think of thousands of little examples of this. Uh, one example that I thought of uh, just this morning was uh, there's something I hope each of you did this morning. That's shower. Hopefully you did that, or maybe you did that last night. I don't know if you're a night person. But whenever you shower or you take a bath, there's one thing you do. You get out a towel, and you put it near where you're going to get out, don't you? Why do you do that? Because you have a future expectation that you're going to be wet when you're done. And you don't want to run through the house and try to look for a towel, right? And, And we could think of all sorts of little examples like that. The things you expect to happen in the future shape the decisions you make now. There's some bigger kinds of things. So a lot of, a lot of people right now are uh, into buying gold. Right? If you listen to the radio at all, you're going to hear endless advertisements for gold line and buy gold. And, and the reason people are buying gold and rushing to buy gold is because they have a future expectation that the dollar is going to be in the toilet and it's not going to be worth anything. So you better have some gold. A number of years ago, a lot of people made a, a, a decision based on a, some future expectations. There were people who saw the housing market just go up and up and up and up and up and thought, man, this is never going to end. Maybe you were one of these people. And in light of that future expectation, maybe you made a decision to refinance your home, take out a bunch of cash, um, get a new loan, thinking this will only keep going up and to the right. Oops. Right? And now you're maybe dealing with some of the pain of that, but you would have never made that decision without some kind of future expectation. There's a thing we're doing as a family right now. I can't believe it. With daughters that are five and two, we are already saving for braces. I mean, seriously? All the things you got to think about as a parent? Why? Because we have a future expectation that our kids' teeth will be crooked. We can tell already. Like, we're going to need that. And so we live in light of that future thing. It doesn't just have to do with money. It has to do even with, with emotionally and relationships. There are some of you um, where you have a future expectation of people that they will let you down. That they will 
not hold up their end of the bargain, or they will backstab you, or they will turn on you, or they will abandon you. And maybe that's based on past experiences, but you have a future expectation that that's how people are. And so you won't let anyone get close to you. You won't open up. You won't, you won't let anybody really have a look at who you are because of that fear. And, and that future expectation shapes your current decision. We could go on and on with examples. But one other thing that I think is interesting as you sort of think about this is that this reality of, of the future shaping your current decisions is only true to the degree that you really believe something's going to happen in the future. So someone can say something's going to happen in the future, and if you don't really believe it, and especially emotionally believe that that's true, you won't, you won't act on that future expectation. So, for example, we live in the desert, right? And when, when you hear the weather person rarely say, 60 to 80% chance of rain today, you know what you don't do? You don't go put your umbrella in your car. Because emotionally you're going, yeah, right. It is not going to rain here. No way. And, and so if you don't really believe that's going to happen, you don't, you don't actually act on it. The same thing is true for all sorts of s- sort of self-destructive habits that we have, right? Um, various sorts of substance addictions or smoking or overeating or under-exercising or all these things that, that you kind of know, yeah, I should do that. If I don't do something about this, there's going to be future things. But it's not until you get the diagnosis that you have high blood pressure that you actually do something about it. And the reason is because you didn't really emotionally believe that that could happen to you. you know, yeah, that can happen, and that can happen to people, but, but not me. As we think about what shapes our future reality, so much of, of what shapes it is what we think is going to happen in our future. And not just intellectually, but emotionally. And what we want to talk about today for this final me- message in this doctrine series is the future. We've talked up to this point really just about the past and the present. And today we're going to take a glimpse into the future. So we began a number of weeks ago looking at this reality of God, that he is, that he exists, one God uh, in three persons. We looked at the Trinity, a, a relationship of love between the members of the Trinity, as, as Linda mentioned just a moment ago. And that that God created the world and created people in his image. That gives us an understanding of why we long to be loved and to love. This, this reality that we, just, we are relational creatures. It's because we're made in the image of this God. We looked at the fact that human beings fell into sin. Theologians call the fall. That they chose... To rather than love and serve the creator, they chose to turn away from him and go towards created things. That's the fall. And and Adam and Eve did that, and all of us do that as well. And in light of that, we saw all these promises that God brings, that he's going to redeem people and rescue people out of that condition of sin, that he sent his son Jesus to live and to die and to be raised again, and that out of that he creates a new people who are then to go into the world as worshipers and stewards entrusted with that message to bring good news. That's, that's sort of where we've been and, and what we've looked at is that past and that present. Today we look at the future, the future specifically of the kingdom of God. What does the future hold? That's the question we're looking at today. And I'm going to put four things up here. Um, We're not going to talk about all of these in depth, but these are things, as you look at the overall comprehensive teaching of the Bible, these are things that the Bible says the future holds. And, And listen, this is coming. This is real. 
This is not myth. This is not make-believe. This is not pretend. And, and the way we know that is because everything that we've looked at so far in the story has resonated with our experience. We go, yes, the reason I'm a relational creature is because I made the image of a relational God. The reason this world is so broken and, and, and torn apart in relationships and in, in war and in hatred and in bigotry and all kinds of things is because of sin. The only explanation for a group of people, a group of followers of Jesus who are scared going from 11 to 120 to a worldwide movement must be the resurrection of Jesus. We, we look at this story and we go, this is the true story of the world. To deny anything we've looked at at this point in this series is to deny reality. This is how it is. And the future is reality. This is what's going to happen. So here's four things the Bible teaches that the future holds. Number one is that Jesus will return again. Jesus is coming back. Can we hear an amen for that? Jesus is coming back. Yeah, that's good news. He's coming back. Number two, the Bible teaches there will be a bodily resurrection of the dead to life or death. Everyone who dies will be resurrected. Jesus was resurrected as the first fruits of our resurrection, and this kind of leads into the next one, is that all human beings will stand before God in a final judgment. So there will be a resurrection from the dead, and we will stand before God, every person, give an account of his or her life, and out of that we will have eternal life or eternal death. That's what the Bible teaches. And then here's the last thing the Bible teaches about the future, is that the kingdom of God will finally come in fullness. The kingdom of God will finally come in fullness. Now, there's a lot of discussion about these things. There's a lot of discussion. Okay, Jesus returned. When will Jesus return? What will be the sign of Jesus' return? Uh, Will he return um, before some sort of tribulation period or after or in the middle? There's all these questions about that. There's all these questions about resurrection and what is that like exactly. There's questions about, well, what's the final judgment look like for people that are already saved? And how does that work? And there's all these discussions about the end times, right? And so many of you would just love for like, yeah, talk about the end times. I'm so curious about how all that works. Here's the thing. The main point of all of it when you look at the, the future is number four, the kingdom of God is coming in fullness. To argue or to think about all the rest of it is to sort of care more about the labor pains than the baby. So like when we had our our firstborn daughter, Abby, when she was born, a couple of hours after that happened, my parents came into the room to celebrate, and I'm I'm standing there and I'm holding her, and she's a little baby. And my parents' reaction was not, So tell us about the contractions. How far apart were they? It was, wow, there's a baby. There she is. That's who we've been hoping for. And so I'm not saying that the discussion of details is irrelevant or that it doesn't matter. I'm just saying it's not the main thing. The main thing as we look to the future is the reality that the kingdom of God will finally come in fullness. That's what we're talking about today. That's what we're looking ahead to is the kingdom of God. When we say kingdom of God, what do we mean? Well, here's a definition by Mark Driscoll and uh, Jerry Brashears. They say the kingdom of God is about Jesus our king establishing his rule and reign over all creation, defeating the human and angelic evil powers, bringing order to all, enacting justice, and being worshipped 
as Lord. So he's ruling and reigning over all creation, defeating evil power, bringing order, enacting justice, being worshipped. That's the kingdom of God. So life where that is happening is life in the kingdom of God. Now the Jewish people had a, an understanding of how, how the kingdom of God would come. See, they, they really saw that the history would be divided into sort of two ages. There would be the old age and the age to come. The old age would be the age that we're in, this age that is so marked and defined by sin and by evil and by death and by Satan. This old age where you look around and you go, this can't be all there is. Like, there's got to be more to it than this. Like, this, if this is the end of the story, this is really lousy. So there's this old age, and then they imagine that there would be a new age, an age to come filled with knowledge and, of God and love and, and joy and peace and all of these things. And what they understood, the way they thought that it would happen, is that the Messiah, that word means anointed one, that there would be an anointed one sent from God who would initiate the age to come. So at the coming of the Messiah, this whole new thing would start. That is why when you read the Gospels, and they're so concerned as you read and they interact with Jesus, and they say, are you the one that was to come, or is there someone else, or are you the... They have all their hopes that this world of sin, death, evil, and Satan will be done away when this Messiah comes. And so they're always asking him, is now when you're going to start your kingdom? Is now when it happens? Is, is now the thing? Right? And they expect this big political takeover, and it's all because of this expectation they have. Now, the Bible actually teaches that it would happen a little differently than this. The Bible teaches that it would happen like this. There's this old age, the world that we know of, for the most part, and, and Jesus would come, and he would come once. This Messiah would come once, the first time represented by the cross. He would come to overcome uh, Satan and sin and death through his death on the cross, that he would, at that point, initiate the kingdom but that then he would ascend and that he would come back. And that at that point, the age to come would be fully uh, instituted or fully underway. So there's this overlapping period. Does that, does that picture make sense? And we're, if you can imagine, we're in the place where those circles overlap. We're in that point. We're in that middle ground where Jesus has come once already. He's initiated the kingdom of God, but he hasn't brought it to its fullness. So let's look at just a couple of passages that help you see that this is, in fact, what the Bible's saying. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want to look to uh, the Scripture. Uh, Jesus initiated the kingdom of God. We see that in the passage you just looked at. If you've got your Bible still open to Mark 1, you can look at this. In verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. That means it's here, it's close, it's immediate, it's now. The kingdom of God is at hand. In light of that, Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus initiated it. It's here. It's now with the coming of Jesus. In Luke 17, uh, some Pharisees are asking him about this, and he answers them. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. And that word signs, I think it's the only place that's used in the Greek New Testament. It sort of refers to like um, big, uh, like, exp like explosions of the stars and sort of like heavenly signs that would be kind of really strange or weird. He says, that's, it's not coming with that. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, listen, I'm the king. And wherever the king is, there's a kingdom. 
And the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus says, I have come to initiate this kingdom. And he validates that in his life by performing all sorts of wonders. Um, some would call them miracles. But really all he's doing is he's, he's allowing the kingdom of God to break into history. So what does Jesus do throughout his ministry? Not only does he teach, but what else? He heals people. So there's people born paralyzed who all of a sudden can jump and dance and walk. There's people born blind who all of a sudden can see. There's people who die who are raised to new life. Why does that happen? Because what Jesus is doing is he's validating the truth that the kingdom has come. The reason that we see and experience miracles, even sometimes in our day, is because all it is is, is an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. The way things will be fully, we get a taste of it here. That's what happens through Jesus' ministry. The kingdom of God is initiated, but Jesus doesn't bring it to its full reality until he returns. Uh, there's this expectation that he would do it. I mentioned this from Acts 1, uh, 6, after Jesus is resurrected. They're already asking him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Is this it? Okay, now you, you did that whole ministry thing and that whole life, death, resurrection thing, but, but now, like it's age to come time, right, Jesus? This is it. Like now we grab power. Now we take over. And Jesus says, uh, no. No, I'm, I'm going to send you by the power of my spirit to be my witnesses. And you don't know the day or the time when I'm going to return, but I'm coming back. In Luke 19, we also learn that people suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear right now. But Jesus says, no, no, it's, it's not going to. So this is, if we're dishonest, right? If you're intellectually sort of processing this at all, you've got to go, this doesn't make much sense. This is weird. I mean, what, what theologians would call this is the, the idea that the kingdom is here already, but not yet. Right, the kingdom is here, it's at hand, it really, it really was initiated by Jesus, but it's not yet in its fullness. And this is just a strange, this is a strange way to think and to talk. I, I picked up my mom at the airport last night, and if someone had come to me uh, sometime yesterday and said, hey, uh, is your mom here yet? And my answer was, yes, she'll be here in three hours. You would look at me and go, I don't think you understood the question. Is she here? Yes, she'll be here in three hours. I mean, that's kind of what this is, right? I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't totally make sense. I mean, how can it be here and yet not totally be here? And there's all sorts of examples that could be given, but, but it's a confusing reality. But the Bible teaches that it's, that it's true, that Jesus has initiated the kingdom. He's won the decisive blow, but he will come back to initiate the kingdom or to bring, I guess, the kingdom to its fullness. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at each of those truths, that Jesus initiated the kingdom and that it's still not yet in its fullness. And I want to ask two questions with each one. I want to ask, what does this mean and what should we do in light of it? Now, I'm helped uh, this week especially by a, a um, guy from Trinity Western uh, Seminary in Canada. Um, his name's Michael Goheen. He's one of the teachers through our Surge Network. We have a, a network of a leadership development school that we've started with a bunch of other churches. And uh, Mike was here this week, and he was teaching a lot about the kingdom of God and these things. And so it was particularly helpful. There were lots of moments where I'm sitting there going, 
Okay, thanks for developing my sermon for me, Mike. This is it, perfect. I mean, he's just saying everything I've been studying and looking at and going, okay, that's a great way to to look at it. So I want to give credit where credit's due um, and at least acknowledge that Mike was a big part of helping me understand this. Um, So first, the kingdom of God is already here. What does that mean? What does that mean? We see it, right, Mark 1.15. The kingdom of God is at hand. What, What does that mean? What that means is that we have an actual taste, a foretaste of a future kingdom reality. Uh, Maybe a way to think about it is like this. You ever have a time when when you go, and especially guys, if you've been at work and maybe maybe you come home and, and your wife is making dinner or something like that, and you come into the house and you can smell it. Like if maybe there's onions and garlic sautéing or, you know, some sort of stew or soup or something has been, you know, going all day or chili or Molly made this really good soup the other day. And you just walk in the house and it's like, oh, you can smell that, right? You can smell it. You can't, you haven't tasted it yet and you definitely haven't had the meal, but you can, oh, something. Yeah, this is, this is good. That's what the Old Testament believers had. They had a sniff of the kingdom of God. They had promises from God. They had sort of these moments where that, oh yeah, the kingdom of God, it's coming. But as you can see, they didn't really even fully understand how it was to happen. So they got a sniff of it. But then Jesus comes and Jesus gives a taste. So this is like when after you've smelled it, you come in and, uh, and you, you grab the, the ladle and you, and you dip it into the, into the soup and you have a taste and you go, oh, that's so good. Now the question at that point is this, have you had dinner? Once you've tasted that, have you had dinner? How many of you say, yeah, you've had dinner? No? You haven't had dinner? More of you? How many of you, doesn't matter what, you'll never raise your hand? (laughs) Um, the, The answer is really, yes, you have had dinner, but not in its fullness, right? So there's an example of already, not yet. Like, like what, that's what you're eating for dinner. You've had, you've had some of dinner, but you haven't had the full thing. So the Old Testament Christians, the Old Testament believers get a sniff. Okay? And, and, then, and then we, as the people of God, uh, initiated by Jesus bringing the kingdom, we get a real taste. But we're waiting for the full meal. We're waiting for the full thing, right? This is why the Bible actually calls um, this full meal the wedding supper of the Lamb. It uses this language that the, that the kingdom of God in its fullness is like a feast, right? There's times where we go out to eat or we'll eat something and especially some kind of dessert and you just, you eat it and you go, they'll serve this at the wedding supper of the lamb. This is on the list. Like this is going to be, because you go, this is so good. It's got to be part of the kingdom of God someday. So you get these tastes, you get these glimpses and we get tastes in our lives, don't we, of the kingdom of God? Whoa. Many of you could tell stories. You could come up here and you could talk about how your life was, was headed in a direction where you were, you were living for yourself. You thought you could find your, your meaning and your joy and your happiness in your work or in your career or in your family or in some uh, extracurricular pursuit. And you said, this, this will satisfy me. And, you, and all you experienced is you went down that road. You got glimpses of, yeah, this is okay, but, but that just led you to death. That just led you to go, what am I doing? This, there's got to be more to life than this. And then someone comes in your life and they tell you about Jesus and they share the gospel and you start reading the Bible and all of a sudden you go, aha, 
This is it. And now there's, a, now there's a freedom from the sin that you pursued. There's a freedom from the shame that you carry because of how you sinned and how people sinned against you. And you can almost literally feel that wash away off of you as you surrender to Jesus and your whole life is made new. And when that happens, what you're experiencing is a taste. Some of you, you've had moments where you've been in some kind of pain or some kind of chronic disease or the doctor came and said, hey, this is the diagnosis. And you said, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to invite people to pray. And they started to pray for you. And, and next thing you know, you're called into the doctor and the doctor says, I don't know what happened. We can't really explain this. Um, I don't know. And you've got a taste the kingdom of God. You got a taste of that. Now, did, did it mean that you'll never have pain again? Does it mean that you're fully relieved from all suffering and difficulty? No, but you got a taste. And so there's these ways that God allows us to have a taste of certain things. Uh, one of the things for me, before I was a follower of Jesus, I um, had a problem when I was in high school that I really, I really like to kind of use foul language. And uh, especially around my friends. It wasn't really very popular around my parents. Um, but around my friends, I had a, I had a real foul mouth. And uh, I recognized that this was a problem and that this was not good and I, that it should change and that it wasn't sort of a respectful kind of conduct or whatever. I don't know. I was fairly moral, I guess. But I got in this, uh, I had this buddy, EJ, and he and I both realized this is probably not the best way to speak. It's kind of ugly and whatever. And so we challenged each other that every time we said something inappropriate, we would have to do push-ups. And so, holy cow, we did a lot of push-ups. And we tried, and we tried, and, and we would do all sorts of things, and all sorts of contests, and all sorts of competitions to see who could stop using foul language. And then the kingdom of God came into my life, God awoke, awoke my heart, brought me to life spiritually, made me born again. And you know something that just went away? Instantly, the, that whole way I spoke just disappeared. It just changed. I got a taste of the kingdom of God. Now listen, do you think every other problem in my life went away? Yes. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. And there's all kinds of other stuff where I go, God, could you do that with this? Like how about that thing in me where I, you know, I, I talk before I think, Lord, could you just take that away? I mean, don't you have, and many of you could tell stories like that, where you go, you know what, at the time that I came to faith in Jesus, this part of my life radically changed. Uh, Wade is here. He's got an incredible story of how God just freed him from some stuff. And, and to the point where you listen to it, you go, you got to be kidding. That can't be true. But it's true. God freed him. God didn't free him from everything. But here's what it is. You get a taste of the kingdom of God now. And then the hope that the power you've experienced and the freedom you've experienced and the joy you've experienced and the release from bondage to sin, the deliverance that we sang about earlier, you get a taste of that now and you have the hope that it will all be changed in the future. See, listen, if God could take away foul language in a moment, don't you think he could take away every other sin in a moment? And that's exactly what he will do when he returns or when I die, bam, in a moment. Tasting the kingdom of God. So what should we do in light of this? In light of the fact that Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, it's here, we have a foretaste of it, what should we do? Well, Jesus answers that question. Look at verse 15 again of Mark 1. 
time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In light of the fact that this kingdom is here and it's now, repent. That means simply turn around. So we talked about that if God were over here, uh, that the fall has led us to turn away from the creator and instead to worship and serve created things. So we love our stuff, and we love our pride, and we love people, and we idolize all sorts of things. We're, we're headed away from God. And the word repent simply means turn around. Turn. Turn back. In light of the fact that the king is here, and the kingdom is here, and he's here to renew and to restore all things. It's here. It's now. Repent. Turn back to him. Trust him. Believe in him. It's a shift of allegiance. In light of the fact that Jesus has brought the kingdom, repent. Believe in the gospel. So the kingdom of God is already here. But what about this? The kingdom of God is coming in fullness. That was the already, now the not yet. The kingdom of God is coming in fullness. What does this mean? And what do we do in light of it? Simply what this means is all things new. That's what the Bible teaches, all things new. Uh, The whole Bible, David Lawrence says, the whole Bible leads us to expect a glorious renewal of life on earth so that the age to come will be an endlessly thrilling adventure of living with God on the new earth. With his presence pervading every act, we shall be more fully human than we have ever been, liberated from sin, death, and all that hurts or harms. Doesn't that sound too good to be true? I mean, really? It's just, even to say, an endlessly thrilling adventure of living with God. You go, what, really? Like, that sounds a little, like, mythical. Or, that is true. Our hearts long for adventure, don't they? Even if, if, even if we're too scared to actually, like, step into one, we, we watch movies about them, and we read books about them, and they thrill our hearts. This adventure, and that is, that is coming because we're made in the image of God, and that image will be restored when the kingdom comes in its fullness. And that's why it says we shall be more fully human than we've ever been. You can't imagine life without the pain and without the brokenness and without the sin and without the petty stuff and without the broken relationships. You can't even picture that, can you? That's not how you were made to be. That's how we've all been distorted by sin. And the kingdom of God coming is going to make us who we truly were meant to be. He says the whole Bible leads us to this. One passage that makes this clear is Revelation 21. Let's look at that. We'll put it on the screen. Uh, John is writing. He's been given a vision of heaven and a vision of the future. And he says... Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Remember, there's a throne, right? This is a king. This is a kingdom. There's a voice coming of the king from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, 
Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What is the future? It's all things new. And notice that Jesus himself there on the throne says, write this down. Like, like don't, don't gloss over this. Don't forget this. Hey, John, I know you got a lot of stuff in this letter to write, a lot of things to keep track of, a lot of thoughts. Hey, hey, write it down. Why? Because the Lord knows that if we think it's just pretend or if we think it's just myth or if we think, well, that may or may not really happen, then it won't impact us. He's saying, listen, this is sure. This is true. Write it down. I'm making all things new. And what a glorious promise. All things new. Think about this. This is saying that redemption or salvation is going to be as wide as everything that was broken by sin. So Matthew, early on in our, in our uh, series here, he talked about the fall. And he talked about how the fall didn't just break your relationship with God, but the fall distorted creation. Right, So there's all these problems in creation, and uh, we're experiencing a bit of that right in the East Coast right now. Um, hurricanes, earthquakes, on and on. That's all part of a broken creation. Relationships between people, broken, all of it. Right, the, the consequences of sin are as wide as creation. And therefore, the salvation of God has got to be as wide as creation. So the hope of the kingdom of God is not simply that it would be sort of you and your soul in some sort of cloudy, you know, harps and fat little babies and some sort of disembodied heaven thing that must be kind of cool. No, what this is saying is that the kingdom of God is everything we already know made new. Physical, tangible. You will breathe air in the kingdom of God. You will get dirt under your fingernails in the kingdom of God. But it will all be made new. Listen, if it wasn't that way, well, here's what J.A. Seiss says. I, I, I really think this is insightful. He says, if redemption does not go as far as the consequences of sin, it is a misnomer and fails to be redemption. If redemption does not go as far as the consequences of sin, Satan's mischief goes further than Christ's restoration. And God ain't going to let that happen. So all things new. That's what this means. That's what this future reality means. All things new. Then the next question is, what should we do in light of it? What should we do in light of it? I, I, someone handed me this after the first service. Uh, this was a quote that they had heard uh, from, I think, David Jeremiah. And I, I think this is actually an incredible quote. Um, here's what he says. He says, living like you're dying. Right? I mean, you've, heard, you've heard Tim McGraw's song. Live like you're dying. and you know, You've seen Bucket List, right? Live like you're dying, right? He said, living like you are dying makes life all about you. Living like... Jesus is returning, makes life all about him. I think that's true. We live in light of this by giving the world a preview of the kingdom that's to come. We're to give the world a preview of this. We're to say, okay, the kingdom has already started. I've already experienced tastes of it. Now as the people of God, as a community of people, we're to give the world a preview. Uh, Michael Goheen used the example of a movie trailer. You know, when you think about a movie trailer, what is a movie trailer? It's actual footage from the movie. 
Sometimes it's the best footage from the movie. Those are bad movies, right? I, I like movie trailers. I don't, do you like movie trailers? I, I, think they're, I think they're really interesting and especially creative. But when you watch a movie trailer, it's actual footage. And what it's saying is, it's saying if you come and watch the rest of this movie, if you come watch the other two hours, this is a taste of what you'll see. And that's what the church is to be. That's what you're to be individually. That's what collectively we're to be. We're to give to the world a preview. We're to live out actual footage of the kingdom of God at work in us to give people a glimpse of here's what life in the kingdom of God would be like. But if we don't think that Jesus is really coming back, if we don't really think that this kingdom is, is worth living for and worth being excited about, then you know what we do? We blend in with everybody else. We, we tell the world what we're excited about is having a great family. What we're excited about is making a lot of money and having a good retirement. What we're excited about is being liked, having a lot of Facebook friends. Really? Really? Child of God, that, that's all? That's all, that, that's all that you feel inspired to live for? Really? No. But if you're there, it's because you've lost sight of the glory of the kingdom. Maybe it's because it's been so long since you had a real tangible taste of the kingdom at work in your life here. I'm struck by the, the reality that so many of the people who got a tangible taste of the kingdom from Jesus, like he healed them or he raised them, so much of it happened when Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And they answered. And as people of God, as children of God, God is asking us at all times, saying, what do you want me to do for you? And he may not always do it. But could it be that part of the reason you haven't had a taste in a while is because you haven't asked, you haven't thirsted, you haven't sought for him? What would it look like? Can you imagine what we'd be if we were a community that gave the world a true preview of the kingdom of God? Imagine this. Here are some things we'd be. We'd be a community of generosity and simplicity in a consumer world. We'd be able to say, no, got enough. Don't need more. I can give it away. I'm, I'm fine. We'd be content. We'd be a community of selfless giving in a world of assumed selfishness. Not, it wouldn't be live for me. It'd be, hey, I can give it away. I'm open-handed. We'd be a community of truth with humility and boldness in a world of relativism. Wouldn't that be something? We took a stand for something. Like we love people. We love people genuinely. But we also know there are some things that are right. And we approach that with humility and yet courage to say, hey, this is how the world actually is. And there's truth. And the truth is found in God's word. And, and it's not because I'm great. It's because Jesus is. And we could be bold. We could be a community of joy and thanksgiving in a world of entitlement. In a world of I deserve it. And, and look at me. And God owes me something. We could actually be thankful not just once a year, all year. We could be a people of joy in a place that is so needing joy. We could be a community of purpose 
in a world of non-committal apathy. To go, I, I know what I live for. I know what's most important. I know what matters. And I am going after that. I am going hard after Jesus. We could be a community who experiences God's presence in a world that always tries to explain it away. That's one of the things I love about our gatherings together. There's something that we can experience when we're all together in these moments, when some of the distractions have gone away and and we're focused on God and his word and we have this opportunity to sing and to make noise and to celebrate. There's something that can happen there. There's an experience of God that can happen there that can't happen in quite the same way as changing a diaper. It can't happen in quite the same way as going to check the mail. Or all these other things that we do that are important and they're part of life and we try to do them empowered by God's Spirit and, and, and faithful to Him and knowing that He's always with us. But, but this moment that we have together, these moments as a community where we can say, we're experiencing God. God's here. Come and see. C- come see part of this. Like, like the, the main attraction here is not, uh, wow, they've got a great program for kids. Or, or man, look at that pink gorilla that's out front welcoming them in. Or, or you'll win an Xbox if you come. It's saying, there's something you can get here. God, come. Come see it. Come experience him. That's what we long to be, isn't it? We're here for him. We're to give a preview of the kingdom. This kingdom is coming. Let's live in light of that truth. Let's pray. God, we we thank you for the truth of your kingdom. We thank you that it's coming in power. Uh, We pray that we would live in reality of that. God, I pray that we would be people who are repenting and believing the gospel because the king is here. And I pray that we would also be people who are living uh, to give a preview to the world around us of what life could be like in the kingdom of God. That life of generosity and giving and truth and joy and purpose and experiencing you, God. Could we live that? Could we experience that and know that? Not just theoretically. um, Not with words, but could we know that with power? Would you actually transform our lives in tangible ways? God, I'm mindful of the people for whom today um, all they can think about is the pain. And uh, any future hope of promise um, just seems very distant compared to the, the shout of pain that they're hearing in their lives. And so I pray that by your spirit you would give faith today, that you would give confidence that your word is true, and that you can be trusted. And that behold, you are making all things new. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.